All right, Christ Community Church, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6, we'll be in verses 1 through 19 this morning. And this is the ninth lecture. Uh, we won't read, actually get to all of it, but we'll get to the majority of it. Um, and uh, in this, the, the teacher is going to show us what it looks like to exercise discretion in a variety of circumstances. So the, so the key truth that I want us to walk away with this morning is this, that God's wisdom is clearly displayed in our everyday experiences in order to teach us to be discreet and not embody the sin that separates us from him and our neighbors. Let me read that again. God's wisdom is clearly displayed in our everyday experiences in order to teach us to be discreet and not embody the sin that separates us from Him and our neighbors. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's Word, this is Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 19. My son, if you put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man." A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we step into this text uh, this morning, the first question that I have for us is, is where all do you look for wisdom and, and how to be discreet? Where are the places that you look to learn uh, how to navigate life, how to, how to use insight, how to use wisdom in ways that are practical. And then what is required of you to be able to do this? Well, one of the things the book of Proverbs teaches us so clearly is that, that every riven thing can, can actually help us grow in wisdom and insight and discernment. The natural world, because it is created by God, the creator, and there is an order to it, and there's a pattern to it, and it bears some measure of his image, it, it has much to teach us, as does human nature, because we are image bearers. And we can learn from not only the things that people get right, but certainly the mistakes that people make, because they tend to uh, be repeated and repeatable, and they tend to have the same results under similar circumstances. And so we want to be the kind of people who are gleaning wisdom, insight, and discretion from, from any and every place that we can so that we can grow as people who are righteous, just, and equitable for the glory of the Lord. 
And so this requires us to, to want to find these things, to have the kind of awe and the kind of uh, um, mindset that, that realizes the sovereignty of God, the omniscience of God, the omnipotence of God, that, that He created this world. And there's much that we can learn uh, from all that is around us. And so as we step into this text, we need to recognize that the teacher is beginning to show the student not just himself, not to just look within, not to just wrestle with his heart and mind, but now to begin to look at the world. And he's doing so in a fashion that is fairly common uh, to us who, who are students of the Bible. We see this often uh, in parables. We see this often in Jesus' teaching, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. Think about when, when he talks about the, how God feeds the birds of the air and clothes the lilies and how that helps us to not be anxious about what we eat and what we wear. And he is constantly pointing to the natural world as a, as a means of, of teaching us. The psalmist does the same thing. Creation is often a subject that, that is an entry point into deeper theology. And so we want to, along with the student, be able to grow in this, to be able to gain from the things that are around us, from the circumstances in which the sovereign Lord places us, if we would have but the eyes to see, the ears to hear, the attentiveness and the intentionality. And so what he does is he, in this particular lecture, the ninth lecture, there's actually five different circumstances he gets into. We're only going to deal with the first four. Each of them has kind of an acrostic form to them, so they're easy to remember. And uh, what we note uh, straight away is that there is no call to be attentive or listen, right? This is actually connected to the previous lecture. And so he's giving him some, uh, giving the students uh, some opportunities to, to begin to apply some of the things that he's teaching him. So he's giving him circumstances and asking him to look deeper at them. I think it was C.S. Lewis who talked about uh, when we see light, it's hard to, hard to actually see things when you look directly at them. You have to look along the line of them. And there's a sense in which if we were to look directly at these things, we would actually miss what the teacher is saying. Think about how many times people say, you know, Jesus taught a lot about money. And then they stop there. Was Jesus teaching about money or about the heart and idolatry, and affection, and desire, right? So yes, he used money as, as the thing that would, would help serve to teach those who are around him, but he wasn't just teaching us good principles about economics. He was teaching us about the economy of the heart, and desire, and affection. And so we, in the same way, want to make sure that we don't just look at the surface of this, but look, look into past and beyond it for what the Holy Spirit would have for us. Let's turn back to the text and see the first instance where he calls for the student, don't put yourself up as security for someone else. He says, my son, if you, put your, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, let me pause here. There's no law against doing this, actually. And what he's essentially talking about is if, say, you have a neighbor who's in trouble in some form or fashion, then you, you rush in an effort to try to help your neighbor uh, or even a stranger uh, by making a vow of some kind, by yoking yourself, your reputation, your material worth to this person. Uh, without thinking fully through what's going on. Think about the many places in the Bible where it says, don't make a rash vow. Um, and we actually see the, the dark side of this. When, when there was one of the kings who said, if the Lord gives me victory, I'll sacrifice the next person who comes through the door. And the next person who came through the door was his daughter. And so we, what, what's being said here is don't offer what you cannot pay, right? And definitely don't do it for someone who's already evidenced they're unwise. They've shown no penchant as of yet 
to, to, that they can actually handle their own business and wisdom, and it actually will stunt their growth and opportunity to, to deal with their issue. And so he's essentially saying, don't go rushing in and putting yourself up uh, for something and never pay what you can't afford to lose, essentially is what he's saying. And so he goes on to say, if you if you're snared in the words of your mouth, that's the vow part, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. See, in this instance, again, somebody, you're yoking yourself to someone who has already evidence that they're not wise. They've made some unwise decisions getting themselves into the circumstance they're in. And so we, we do want to help them. Like Proverbs is filled with the declaration that we are to help the poor. We are to help those who are in need. The Bible is filled with that. This is a different circumstance. This is actually um, uh, taking ownership of something that you ought not take ownership of. Right? Again, if you're going to help somebody, you ought to be able to do it in such a way uh, that you can afford to lose whatever it is you've given or give up whatever it is you've offered up. And in this case, it's this person's reputation essentially is being yoked to someone who has evidenced unwisdom previously. And so in the same way, we could say, okay, well, all right, that's, I, I, I just won't, if my neighbor comes over and, and asks me for, for some help, I, I, just, I, won't, I won't co-sign on a car for him. Well, Yes, there's some, some wisdom in thinking that through, but we also need to think about all the different ways in which we put ourselves up as a pledge for someone who is unhealthy, whether that's spiritually, physically, relationally. Think of how many times people get themselves into trouble by making vows to someone, yoking themselves to someone, and placing their reputation, their uh, physical health, their spiritual health, their mental health, in a dock that, um, that is just unwise to place it in. This is where we need to help our children. This is a great uh, opportunity for our children to learn discretion in the relationships that they get themselves into. And again, it, it, it's, it's think about it. There's, this is part of the banks of the river. We want to help people. We want to love people. But does it help? Is it really love if it's selfish on our part and doesn't actually help them? and allows them to stay in the unwise circumstances they're, that they're in and never grow, and never, never grow in wisdom, never grow in fear of the Lord. See, oftentimes we, we think that our love can save someone. It can't. Only God's love can. Only the display of God's love in and through the personal work of Christ can save someone. We think if we're just nice enough to people that, that they'll come around, that that'll be helpful to them. We, we, we hate confrontation. We oftentimes put ourselves up as pledge. We put ourselves in these bad circumstances that are essentially a trap. See, before we go giving away huge parts of ourselves, there ought to be evidence by whoever we're giving it to, wisdom and fear of the Lord, justice and equitability and righteousness. But too often we give those things away. We vow them we, we get ourselves yoked in those circumstances before we know any of those things because we're basing our, our feelings, basing it on feelings and desire as if feeling and desire dictate truth. They don't. Sometimes we make these, these big decisions without really thinking it through because we just want to roll the dice. Well, that's, that's what he's calling the student to not do here. 
Christ says it in a similar way. He says, when someone seeks to build a house, they count the cost. There's wisdom involved in, can I afford to do this? And essentially, that's what the student's being called to here. Before you get involved in something, can you afford it? And do you know what you're going to lose? Are you aware of all that it could cost you? Then in the second circumstance, he shifts from putting oneself up as pledge and actually goes real direct. He says, go to the ant, oh sluggard. Now, I don't know that he's necessarily calling the student a sluggard. I don't think this is necessarily a confrontation. He's using just different examples, but the sluggard is a common character throughout Proverbs. It is a a character who's lazy, doesn't provide for themselves, doesn't take care of themselves, thinks that everybody else ought to take care of them. In fact, the sluggard may very well be the person who he's warning him not to put themselves up for a pledge for. That may be the connection here. And so he calls for the sluggard to go to the natural world. Look at, look at the order of things and pay close attention to the ant. The ant uh, is wise in her ways. She doesn't have to be told what to do. She knows if she wants to eat, then she has to prepare her bread in summer and gather her food in harvest. She recognizes the seasons and wisdom, and she makes sure that she has what she needs in order to survive. And then what the sluggard is failing here is he's, he's failing to recognize that there are seasons in which you have to gather and reap, and there are seasons in which you have to sow, and there are seasons in which you have to prepare and cut down. And he's not recognizing the seasons. He's not recognizing the necessity to take care of himself. He's got, obviously, some things, right, in store because it says that poverty will come on you like a robber and want like an armed man. But he's thinking that there's always going to be something there, that what he has is sufficient to get him through. Well, again, we could look straight at this and say, okay, well, I, I won't be lazy. I'll make sure I work hard, right? Which is, those are good things. Don't be lazy. Don't be like the sluggard and sleep all the time and fold your hands and spend all your time resting and doing nothing. That is true. But to fail to recognize the deeper truth, that if the ant recognizes that that which is life and life more abundant needs to be pursued, How much more we who fear the Lord our God, who has promised to us life in abundance in and through His wisdom and through the personal work of Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, do we not have spiritual seasons? Are there not seasons that we get ourselves, we find ourselves in dry and desert seasons? Think about, we say this often at Christ Community Church, you have no idea how your prayerlessness a month ago Your lack of reading the scripture a week ago is setting you up for something down the road, is setting you up for failure in some form or fashion. And what's interesting is most of the time we find ourselves in a dry place, we we usually charge God with it instead of looking at ourselves and saying, well, how have I treated these seasons? How have I prepared for this moment? Because it will come. If you live long enough, you will find yourself in a desert. If you live long enough, you'll find yourself in a dry spiritual place. We all find ourselves there. I can tell you from experience, the, the, the best thing that I did in one of the darkest seasons of my life is I kept reading Scripture, and I had been reading Scripture, and it, and it was the manna that got me through the wilderness. And so in the same way, this isn't just about an ant, and this isn't just about eating. It's, it's about if you don't know how to do that, much in the same way that when God confronts Job, he says, if you're not going to, if you can't even understand what you see that's, that's right in front of you, how is it that you can make comments about the deeper spiritual things? Well, in kind of a different way, if you can't recognize the necessity to feed your soul based on the necessity to feed your body, 
If you don't understand that, that, that the way in which we mature physically has, has parallels to the way in which we mature spiritually um, and both have an impact on each other, then, then you're, you're foolish. And so this is an important thing for us to recognize uh, that what we're being called to here is, is to, to um, gather spiritually in addition to physically. And then the third circumstance, <clears throat> he points to someone who is all smoke and no show. This person is all about flattery. This person is all about making promises they can't keep. Again, this might very well be someone who uh, the, the teacher would say, don't put up a vow for this kind of person. Don't yoke yourself to this kind of person. Notice what the word says. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. And so he's just, he, it's just flattery and it's gossip and it's nonsense and it's winking and pointing and uh, pantomiming and it's not, not, nothing real. There's no substance to it. This is not a righteous, equitable, just person. Again, they're just, it's just all noise, sound and fury signifying nothing. And then he goes about with a perverted heart, devising evil constantly praying on other people instead of building up and edifying, tearing down, praying on instead of working for, working toward. And he's continually sowing discord. He's causing disunity because, again, that, that distracts from who he really is. That distracts from people noticing, that, wait a minute, this, this, guy's, this guy's fake. This is not real. This is not the kind of person that, that we want to be yoked to. This is not the kind of person that, that we want to be in community with or, or find ourselves alongside. And here's, here's the result. This person will suffer calamity. It'll come upon him suddenly. And in a moment, he'll be broken. And this is devastating beyond healing. So again, we could say, okay, all right, well, I'll stay away from the, the flatterers and the, the, you know, the, the hard sales people who, who make promises they can't keep. I'll, I'll, no, you got to look at your own heart. You got to see where are you this man? Are you this person? Are there ways in which you're making promises you don't keep? Are there ways in which you're flattering and um, you're all smoke and no show? The ways in which you're sowing discord, throwing up smoke screens so that nobody really sees who you really are. See, the righteous person is not afraid to be known. The just and equitable person is not afraid for people to know uh, that, that they are in need of a Savior. The, the righteous, just, equitable person recognizes, who fears the Lord recognizes we are imperfect and we are often wrong and that is not the end of the world. And so what we have in these three examples is, is the call to exercise discretion in relationship with other people as well as in relationship with God, to be able to recognize what's, what's happening in and around us for us physically, but even more importantly, what's going on and the impact that it has on us spiritually. And so it's, it's, it's critical that we, we not just look at the superficial aspect, but that we look beyond it. Uh, to what's deeper still. Listen to what uh, James L. Crenshaw says about this passage. Now, it's phrased a little strange because he's saying it in the past tense uh, because what he's saying is essentially referring to folks back then. And it really is a, a call that we should still be thinking the same way. But this is the way the folks in Proverbs would have thought. Nothing within human experience lacked revelatory capacity. 
So what he means there is everything in human experience had the opportunity to teach us some wisdom, some truth about ourselves, about God, about our relationships with him and each other. He goes on, no vision of past glory or future hope robbed the present moment of its importance. For this reason, every encounter afforded a bridge into the transcendent realm. So what he's saying is everything allows us to see something of uh, God's truth, God's character, God's wisdom. He goes on, the slightest act by an insect or the behavior of humans concealed a secret worthy of discovery. In this way, all of life became an arena in which divine truth unfolded and God's truth coincided with human insight. Would that that would be true of us now, that we would be able to recognize and see in the various places, again, first recognizing nothing is neutral, right? Everything is, is either glorifying God or seeking to rob him of his glory passively or actively in some form or fashion. And so how can we grow from that? How can we uh, be still long enough to see how can we be present in the moment such that we have the eyes to see, ears to hear, where the Spirit is speaking to us in and through those moments, in accord with God's Word, in accord with God's character. And so the question I would have for us is, how has God used that which is clearly displayed in the everyday to teach you discretion and spiritual wisdom? Uh, there's all kind of things that we can learn. In fact, the other day, I was sitting on the porch and there was a, there was a hawk in a, a tree in my neighbor's yard, high up in the tree. And hawks and crows don't really get along too well. I'm not sure how far back the beef goes or what it's all about. But they, anytime they get around each other, the, the crows go crazy. They try to chase the hawk off. They can't stand him. So there were six or seven crows in the tree. And the hawk was sitting there very calm. And it was a fascinating thing to watch. He was clearly outnumbered but he wasn't panicked. He was clearly outnumbered in terms of beaks and claws and wings and all that kind of stuff, but he was unfazed. He stood his ground as the apex predator. And it was interesting to watch how the crows tried to manipulate him. First, they just tried to irritate him with lots of noise. All smoke, no show. Now, is that something we can learn from these days? That, that most of what goes on is just a lot of noise to try to distract and a lot of noise to try to irritate and cause you to move on with no substance whatsoever. I just need to be louder than you. And as it went on, uh, they would you know, maneuver themselves to try to run him off. And there was one in particular that was, that was drawing near, but, but I watched the hawk paid him almost no attention because he knew he was the bait. And that if the hawk gave his attention to that one crow who was drawing nearer, then the others would, would hit him from around the side on his flank. And so it was fascinating to watch the, the wisdom that the hawk used in dealing with these crows. And eventually it was, it was fascinating. The crows got bored or they just realized it wasn't going to work or they realized that one of them could get their head ripped off by the hawk and they chose to go on about their business and leave the hawk to his business. But what was interesting is... is what I was able to glean from that in terms of how we deal with the distractions that go on around us, how we deal with the things that Satan is using to try to attack us. There's much that we can learn from the things that go on around us. I would encourage you in the same way to pray each and every day that the Lord would grant you ears to hear and eyes to see what he has for you in wisdom in the minutes and hours that he's entrusted to you in the circumstances in which he has placed you. There's, no, there's nothing has to be wasted. 
Um, and so would that we would be the kind of people who look for areas where we can grow in discretion. Right, let's turn back to the text and see he's going to do something a little bit different here. He's going to give uh, a, a list use, using numbers. And here it's this, what's called the seven deadly sins embodied at enmity with God and neighbor. So this is also a technique that the teacher will, will use and frequently in other parts of Proverbs as well as other parts of Scripture. He says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Now we should pause right there and recognize that is strong language. And so that should cue us. We need to really lean in and pay close attention to what he's saying so as to be able to examine our own hearts, right? So these, are, these would be the kind of things that would render us not righteous, not just, and not equitable. Listen to what he says, haughty eyes. What does that mean? Well, haughty eyes uh, usually is, is prideful, lustful. Um, uh, 1 John 2 talks about this, that it's through the eyes that the lust of the world gets into us. And haughty eyes often are, are just, just arrogant, prideful, lustful, longing for things that are not yours. Covetous um, would be another thing. A lying tongue. They don't speak the truth, right? That's not a hard one to understand, but, but a lying tongue is an abomination to the Lord. He actually hates that. And yet, how guilty are we of, of, of a lying tongue in circumstances where it could be something as simple, somebody just asked you how you were doing, or it could be a circumstance where you are trying to avoid or cover something up. Um, there, there are no little white lies. A lying tongue is an abomination to the Lord. He goes on, in hands that shed innocent blood, uh, that's, that's pretty straightforward. Um, any, any way in which we are robbing other people of life, any way, direct or indirect. And it's important that we recognize that God hates both. It's not only the direct ways in which we shed blood, it's the ways in which we, we um, uh, allow injustices to continue, to participate in injustices, to participate in, 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 in circumstances that cost other people their lives. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. Are you noticing the different body parts that are being listed here? And this should actually call back to mind Proverbs 4, 20 through 27, when uh, the teacher gave an, an anatomy of discipleship. Well, this is anatomy of sin. This is an anatomy of wickedness that we, we need to recognize. This is an embodied brokenness. This is a total commitment to destruction. A false witness who breathes out lies. Now, this one is different than a lying tongue. A false witness is someone who runs down other people's. This is a gossip. This is someone who runs down other people's reputations, who, who um, talk trash about other people. <sighs> who of us is not guilty of this in some way or shape or form? Or even, even uh, probably more common in, in our current circumstance, saying things about people before it's been fact-checked promoting uh, a lie about someone, even if it's not your intent, but rushing so quickly to moral outrage and just assuming things of, of people who are made in the image of God in ways before we go, I want to know more information before I go, I go putting this forward and sharing this about. We need to be very careful about those kinds of things. Again, God hates them. There's an abomination to Him. And this last one, and one who sows discord among brothers. We need to be very careful about this one. 
this, this is something that God does hate intensely. And sometimes we can think that we are justified in saying some of the things that we're saying and, and passing along some of the information that we're passing along and creating some of the division that we're creating. You need to be very careful about that. that if God hates it, then we should work hard to be sure of what we're doing before we do it. We should work very hard before we speak, act, go, follow, share, whatever it is, that it actually is going to honor and glorify the Lord. That it's actually going to, in some way, shape, nor form, promote His justice, His righteousness, His equitability, which we should display in and of ourselves. We have an election season coming up where this, this needs to be really thought about. We got some circumstances going on in society at current that this needs to really be thought about, right? Are we, are we really going to divide over some of these issues for which we actually only deal with them theoretically? We need to be very careful that we are not doing the very thing God hates. You need to understand God's hatred is far more severe in some measure than our hatred because it's pure and it's holy and there's no wiggling out of it. Praise be to God that Christ died for people who are guilty of all these things. But God is unchanging, so His hate has not changed toward these things. And anytime we engage in them, even as believers, it is, it is deeply distressful to God. Why? Well, because these things separate us from Him and us from each other. Isn't it a blessing that God loves us so much that He hates anything that will carry us from his presence, that will, that will bring us out from under his promises, that would rob us of his glory. Praise be to God that there's a father who loves us that deeply and pursued us when we were all of these things. So why would we return to these things like dogs to our own vomit? Why would we, we not be more careful of these things? I am deeply convicted by these things and am... And, 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 realizing some places that I need, to, I need to take more time before I say certain things or before I pass certain things along. I need to take more time before I engage in certain conversations about other people or circumstances. I need to be much more prayerful before I go just popping off. And I would encourage you to do the same. It's not just for preachers, it's for all who call themselves Christians. But do recognize he's not just beating us up. He's calling us to life more abundant. I've never gained life from any of these things. I've never felt better after talking bad about somebody, bearing false witness. I've never felt better after sowing discord. I've never felt better uh, with haughty eyes. Not long term. Listen to what David Hubbard says about this section of Scripture. He says, The focus in verses 16 through 19 on parts of the body demonstrates the total involvement of the wicked people in their scheme eyes, mouth or tongue, feet, finger or hand, heart, they epitomize with this consuming engagement of their whole selves in the plotting of harm to others, the kind of life against which the teacher has sharply warned in, in chapter 4, 20 through 27, which also abounds in body talk. I love that David Hubbard recognizes that this is consumptive. It consumes you. The whole of their body is involved in their wickedness. There is no part left out. I can't help but think about Paul's words that we are actually to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, as instruments for, for God's glory in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit.
And so this is, this is what the teacher is seeking to teach the student to do in discretion. And so my, my question for you is, is, what impact does your sin have on your relationship with God? Does, when you sin, does it make you want to pray more? Does it make you want to read his scripture more out of affection? Or do you run from those things? Or if you do do those things, are you doing it as, as an attempt at atonement that you could never accomplish? That's why we say you, you, you understand the gospel well if when you sin, you run to the throne of grace to receive both mercy and grace in the time of trouble in which you find yourself. And you should do so with great humility, not with haughty eyes, not with a lying tongue suggesting that your sin was somehow less than what it ought to be or less than what it seems to be. And so it's very important that we recognize that our sin divides us from God, but not just from God. What impact does it also have on those in your spheres of influence? Are there people that you, you just don't want to look in the eye when you have sinned? Are there people you just avoid because you, you can't bear the fact that they may actually see through you? They love you enough, know you well enough. They may be able to see the gathering darkness or the darkness gathered. Why would you rob yourself of opportunities to, to be loved like that, to be cared for in such a way? Why would you push away from, from those who, who love you enough to tell you the truth in the gospel and apply it, both in terms of grace and mercy and justice. And so it's important that we see that, that what, what God hates is what separates. What God finds as an abomination is what actually divides and destroys us. And for us to be just, equitable, and righteous people, we too we too have to learn to hate those things first and foremost in ourselves and to mortify those things in the, with the means of grace that we've been granted in the power of the Holy Spirit with the finished work of Christ. And so um, we're not going to go to the fifth aspect again. It, it, it speaks to the adulteress, and that's not something I, wanna, um, I, I want us to focus on too much because that would actually lead us to think that uh, the majority of what the teacher is teaching is against sexuality. No, it's the full banquet of things. Notice from the examples that he's given just in these four things, there's, there's no uh, direct line to sexuality, although I do think there are applications that can be made. And so it's important that we be willing to look at the things around us, the common everyday things, and ask for eyes to see and ears to hear so that we might grow in discretion. It's important that we examine our own hearts and see where, where might we be harboring that which God hates. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you so loved us, that, that you, you try to teach us discretion, and you do so through, through common everyday things. There is a glorious banquet for us in each and every day. There is many, many opportunities for us to grow in wisdom and insight and discretion if we would but pay attention, lean in, be intentional. Thank you that you are so rich and lavish in your mercy and grace to provide so wonderfully for us. Thank you that you love us enough to make clear what you hate. Forgive us for calling evil good and good evil. Help us to see when we're doing that in such a way that's actually going to be destructive to us eternally and to others eternally. God, would you help us grow in humility and recognize that you loved us when we were your enemies, 
which is why it is so noxious to you when we return to the very ways that we're at enmity with you and with others who bear your image. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.